0: From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations. Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. My name is Sharon Roberson. I am President and CEO of the YWCA Nashville and Middle Tennessee. This organization has been part of the Nashville community for over 122 years. Our mission is eliminating racism, empowering women, promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. I have been the CEO of this organization for four years now. Prior to that, I was a board member. The the bulk of my career has been as a corporate attorney, and some of the issues we're going to talk about today were very much present in all of my career. Now I'll turn it over to Shane Foster.
1: I'm Shane Foster. I am the Executive Director of A Men Together and Vice President of External Affairs at the YWCA of Nashville and Middle Tennessee. A Men Together is a primary prevention initiative that's dedicated to ending violence against women and girls by engaging men and boys to be a part of the solution.
0: Now, today we are in Chapter 14 of Dr. Kendi's book, and this portion of the book is dedicated toward gender. The reason this is very much important at the YWCA, much of our mission statement deals with empowering women. And our efforts are to make sure that everyone understands what that means. Dr. Kendi specifically is looking at the intersectionality between race and gender. And he goes into detail in his chapter in that he wants us to understand This is an evolution in his thought processes. Dr. Kendi talks about the women that he encountered in his graduate program. And these women taught him on things uh, that he had never been aware of before. And Shane and I are going to talk about some of the lessons that Dr. Kendi learned and why he thought it is so important to include a specific chapter in his book on the issue of race and gender in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Shane.
1: So one of the things that was very important to me that Dr. Kendi talked about was his relationship with his parents and the lessons that he learned, some through the activism that his mother had, but also through the actions of his father. He talked about how his father didn't really subscribe to some of the norms that were happening in in Black culture at that time, particularly as it relates to joining the different movements, the various movements that were there, um, Nation of Islam, Black Panthers. And I can relate to that because for me, my father didn't do any of those things either. In fact, we never talked about those activism actions. We we never really talked about sexism or, or racism for that matter. But through my father's actions, he was teaching me how to act and behave, how to be respectful to all people, irregardless of what was happening in society. Now, one of the things that Dr. Kendi talked about that that really resonates with me as well is that society shaped more of his thoughts and beliefs about gender than what happened at home with his parents. And oftentimes we don't give enough credit to those external influences. And then bringing that back to what's happening today in 2020, where individuals are spending more time on their phones and and spending a lot of time with social media and and the news and all of these things are really impacting your thoughts, your actions, your behaviors, uh, what you believe to be true, how you perceive each other. And it's also having a profound impact on bias and unconscious bias. Right, And so these are things that are, are really important for us to consider. It's important to consider how it's affecting our young people, particularly as I work with young people here in Nashville, young men and boys trying to teach them how to value and respect women and girls. You have to understand that all of these external influences are having a profound impact on how they show up every day and creating the space to talk about these things, to deconstruct manhood, and to allow them to come to a place where they can define that for themselves and also be able to talk about the experiences of women and girls. When I think about my experience, even at Vanderbilt University, just taking a women's studies class, I was the only male in that class. And as I talked to teammates and other men on campus about why they weren't taking that class, it was because it was socially unacceptable to do so.
0: Yes, that. And, and Dr. Kendi, and this is really interesting to me, you mentioned his parents. His parents were actually obviously educated and well-meaning. And despite him being in that environment, he acknowledges that even in graduate school, he was sexist and he was homophobic. And he came to the conclusion that you cannot be an anti-racist if you are sexist and homophobic. So this environment, the culture that you grow up with, is so important in determining your outcomes. That's why it's very important to, like you say, deconstruct things and to see what makes this up. Uh, the scholar, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, came up with the concept of intersectionality. And what she hit upon was something that me being black and female really understood that there is a difference between being female and being black and being black and female, being black and male, being white and female, white and male. Those are all differences in our society and your experiences are shaped by that. For instance, uh, Dr. Kendi grew up as a black, heterosexual male in our society. That Those experiences shape him. I grew up as a black, heterosexual female. Those experiences will shape me. And everyone's experiences are different. And it's the appreciation of those that can lead you to, what well, I think is the outcome that we all want in our society of anti-racism. And it's interesting to include that because people think of race, black, white, you know, we're both black, so, you know, it should all be good. But there's a difference between the black female experience and the black male experience. What do you think about that?
1: And it has a profound impact on how people see you and how you interact with others, particularly in the workplace. When I think about hiring, a lot of folks are doing diversity and inclusion work right now and gender is high on the totem pole for that conversation. Because when we're thinking about hiring individuals, it's also important to consider the path it took for someone to sit into that seat. When you think about the different leaders across Nashville and and, and so many female leaders are, are, are really rising in the ranks within large corporations. It's a wonderful thing. It's a place we need to be, but it's also important to stop and think about what was happening over the course of these individuals' lives. What did they have to overcome? What barriers, what glass ceilings are there? And we still have a lot of room to grow when we think about the pay inequities that are happening, particularly as it relates to gender. This is what we're talking about. And this is what Dr. Kendi was alluding to in his book when he's talking about the fact that you cannot be anti-racist without also being anti-sexist.
0: Yes, and he also goes through this whole exercise of looking at how even uh, our society has always felt as though, because black men are so put upon that we all have to support black men, which we agree with that, but sometimes that has effect of leaving out the experiences of black women and also the credit that they should receive for doing the things that they do very well. It's not an either or. If you're anti-racist, you cannot be sexist, you cannot be homophobic, you cannot do any of the above. And the reason for that is because you want everyone to be lifted up and lifting up the black man should not be at the expense of letting the black woman fall and that's what he's talking about because that would just that would that would not be a win and i think that he also looked at that dynamic of white femalehood and black femalehood and that's really a dynamic that you have to breach over there's a sisterhood there i'm part of that sisterhood the sisterhood of being a woman but they cannot as a society we cannot that is discount that i am black because that is shapes my thinking. I used to tell, I used to say when in my corporate world, I was black first and female second. I always would say that because I felt as though when barriers opened up somewhat for females in the corporate world, they were much slower to open up for black.
1: That's a very good point. And, and, And it even gets me thinking about when we think about the intersectionalities, those who are within the margins of the margins who are even left out of that feminism conversation. When you think about the LGBTQ plus community and individuals who are trans, it's it's important that we, we create space. And, and one of the questions that came up was, do we give enough um, space to even talking about this even within the book, right? Because there's so many issues there that don't come up that we don't often think about but as it relates to this conversation around gender, that everyone should be included, everyone should be talked about, everyone's issues should be validated, and we should have an opportunity to make sure that as we're being anti-racist, that we're also addressing all of these other isms that are present within that same conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why he also, in gender, he really just, He usually is male and female in the book. However, he does go into being homophobic because I think that sometimes it's a threat to the status quo, it's a threat to what we've normalized for people to not fit easily into the box of you're a male, you're a female. And when people are outside those lines, it threatens a lot of people in our society and that really holds us back. And it's not until we understand that everyone doesn't have to fit into that box that you are not defined by these gender types that we've grown up accepting as a norm that we can really get beyond this and really have an anti-racist society.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it brings back to the point of how important it is for us to desegregate our own personal lives, to be able to truly get exposure to different culture, to different people, to different ethnicities, and also different races and different genders. It's important to diversify our friend groups, to diversify our net- networks, and as Maya Angelou said, We are more alike than we are unalike, but we don't see that human side if we're so far and so distance away from each other. It's important that we begin to do that hard work of playing in the sandbox together and really appreciating the differences that exist.
0: Yeah, and most definitely. And I think that that is what, that's the whole point. And as you go through each chapter of the book, The whole point is for us to break this down on an individual level. And really the book can be a very personal book for yourself. He's putting his life out there, but each person could write each one of these chapters and look at it from their perspective and see how they can really improve themselves and how they interact with the world. And it's going to take some work and it's going to be uncomfortable. A lot of people think, well, we don't want to feel uncomfortable but you will feel uncomfortable and think about things yourself of how you grow up and how you look at things, especially, you know, you look at trans community, you say, I don't understand that, I don't like that. So people are gonna have to come to terms, but at the root, it all deals with gender stereotypes that people are very comfortable with and do not want to change. Well, let me ask you this, Shane, when people are reading this book and they're trying to really look and they're really being reflective on how they, operate or how they think in their own lives, what made you the most uncomfortable about this chapter? What was kind of difficult for you to to think about?
1: Well, for me, it it was the ability to truly personalize it and, and put myself in Dr. Kendi's shoes, having had some similar experiences in my own upbringing with my parents and then also going out into the real world and seeing something vastly different than what I experienced at home. I had that exact same experience growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana. My family kept me in church all day, every day, and we were somewhat um, distanced from from culture and things that were happening. I was somewhat sheltered, if you will. But when I got to school, it was a completely different environment. When I stepped outside of the house into the, the neighborhoods and was playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, there were expectations of me that were not being reinforced at home, but I absolutely had to assimilate to those things in order to what I call survive in New Orleans because it was was incumbent upon me to be the masculine man, right, the the guy that is tough, that is strong, that shied away from most things that would fit into a feminine category. Anything that was soft, anything that was like a girl, anything that was was feminine, it was, we can't do that. Even to the extent of being able to express yourself, expressing emotions, how you feel. I'll never forget as a young kid when, when a coach told me after being hit and I was laying on the ground and I was crying and he came over to me and he said, out here you don't cry, out here you be a man. And that coach was, was, was really um, ingraining in me that manhood is everything that is different from women. If you're gonna be a man, you can't cry, you can't show any kind of emotions, you gotta be tough at all costs, you gotta be in control, all of these things, things that you never hear associated with the girls. I never saw a coach go to a girl and say those same things. I never saw a teacher who who, who had those same kind of expectations of the girls. And so that shapes kind of how you move throughout this world and even how you think about things. So I didn't begin to learn about sexism and, 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 and homophobia and these kind of things until I got to college and took a women's studies class and was able to really see the impact of some of these isms, the impact of our culture, and how that was affecting uh, women and girls. And I even personalized that and started thinking about my mother and my sisters at home and and the young lady I was dating, is that, is this your real experience? Because outside of that exposure, you don't know.
0: Yeah, especially, and I would say when I was looking at it, one thing that where you really have to reflect, I reflect on the times when as a female, other females were allowed to be softer than a black female. There's this level of, you're expected to be very stoic. You're expected to be strong. Even when it comes to pain, you're supposed to have a higher pain threshold. You're supposed to be this tough person. And I think that one thing that I've even noticed, even in my work uh, working at the Weaver Center, the, because black females are programmed often, even me who had a very privileged upbringing, you're programmed to be a little tougher because you don't get the same excuses of society. And so because society doesn't give you that relief, you have to internalize and really take care and protect yourself. And so I think that there's sometimes misunderstanding, even in our trauma-informed work, that the reaction of a black female is different from the reaction of a white female. I've seen this even in little kids. You know, the crying, the upset, the I'm sad version of the, of the female character is different from the I'm angry, I'm gonna buck up. They come from the same place of trauma, but the reactions have a different effect on those that are caring for people. And what I'm specifically getting at is you have a black female that's a victim of domestic violence. She's grown up in very harsh circumstances. She's learned to be tough because that's survival. And the toughness is really almost more traditionally male-like, going for bad, as they say. I'm gonna fight you, you gonna fight me, but they're both traumatized women from domestic violence. There's a white female, but she's learned to cry, look sad, be beaten down. Both really have the same experiences externally of domestic violence. Both are in a lot of pain, but oftentimes those who are well-meaning in the social services area find the black female reaction as threatening and the white female reaction you need sympathy for and care for and love for and extra protection. And maybe that's the protection of our society. But I see the other, I see the pain on the other side because I'm a black female too. And so that's some of the things that you get into. And unless you get beyond that kind of dynamic, we can never really have an anti-racist society.
1: Well, well, let's stay there for a second because what I've heard from, from a lot of women in a lot of different spaces, whether it's, it's preparing to have a child and, and choosing the doctors that are going to be associated due to what you're talking about in terms of you know, the perceived need for medication, the perceived need um, you know, for different things to deal with pain and, and, and how they're treated, but then even in the workplace. When you think about it in a, a corporation individuals who you know have to assimilate to the culture that is there that can be a lot very male dominant but when when women um, um, bring those kind of traits to the table they're looked at very differently they're treated very differently um, in that place, where, where where some might be very stern, they're called names. They're 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 demonized. They're you know um, bullied in some in some cases. Talk a little bit about your experience in those spaces, because I think it really brings out even a quote that's in the book that talks about the difference between you know women utilizing uh, what they called um, tears, right, in in that space, but then also on the other side of it, having having men who are facing the highest level of persecution. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, and I think I call it uh, weaponizing tears. And let me tell you a story. This is from long ago. I was in in high school at the time, and I was a very good musician. I started playing uh, clarinet actually when I was in fourth grade. So I've been playing, you know, I had multiple instruments and played all the way through and practiced quite a bit. And uh, when I got into high school, you had to try out for first chair clarinet and you often got the solos. And so, you know, I'd worked on them and I was good. I was taking private lessons and all that sort of thing. Uh, There was another woman that had just been, another girl, that is, had just been placed in the first chair by the band director, just randomly. You know, we're gonna make her first chair. And she was happy, you know, and she was wonderful. And she was white, of course. And, I said, you know, I want to challenge her because that's the process. You're supposed to challenge the first chair. You go, you're supposed to have this little playoff. You play certain things, the same music, and then the person that played it the best could move into the first chair. So I challenged her. So the band director kept putting off the challenge. Well, you know, uh, I don't know, she'll be upset. And literally she cried every time I challenged her. And she says I was being mean, it wasn't fair. And he was very sympathetic to that. I had learned to be very stoic and say, well, I'm ready to challenge her. Very assertive mother. I was like I'm my mother's child. I'm ve- I want to challenge her. I want to do this. He would not allow the process to go. Now, this was going on with all the other band members. You know, the first trumpet was, you know, being challenged by the second and all of that. But in this dynamic of two, a black woman, white woman, it could not go forward. Uh, going down the road, one of the uh, college professors was having a tryout for a youth orchestra. And this youth orchestra is supposed to be the best of the best in the, in this, in the city. And so uh, I tried out with blind auditions. You were behind a panel. So he just heard you play. They didn't know who was playing. And I came out first. This other person did not even make, did not even make the orchestra. And it wasn't until I was validated by the outside source, a college professor, that my high school band director realized I was actually the best clarinet player. And it's that sort of thing where the feelings and the the desires of another woman really stood more in my place. And I will say that that has been a big part of my experience where you have that female dynamic and it's really been a very negative experience. So I have to constantly work to make sure that I don't have ingrained in my psyche that this is gonna be a bad experience when I encounter that kind of competitive environment.
1: Yeah, that's really good, that's really good. And when you think about even the, the movements that have happened in history, you go back to the 70s, you go back to the 60s, things that were happening during that time in terms of activism, where, where, where does that play a role in the conversation that we're having today? And, and some of the things Dr. Kidney was talking about in the book.
0: Well, what is great about the future, really about what's going on actually here in the city of Nashville, we're having so many conversations much like this and things are really evolving. People are starting to see, yeah, I was that girl on the other side and I had an advantage. I'm not going to allow that to happen in the future. I'm gonna check myself. I'm gonna be fair when things come down the road. So each individual person, the more conversations we have, the more that people allow themselves to be vulnerable and talk about these issues with their friends. Talk about it not only with your friends, but your broader uh, groups talk about what people that are different from you. Have people that are different from you at the table and talk to them. I found that's been so fascinating in my life to have people with different backgrounds, different upbringings, whether they're from Bellmead or North Nashville, or whether they've you know been an incarcerated person, a DV victim, you know, you know, someone that's you know a billionaire. I love to bring different people to the table and talk about it. And on the issue of gender, now more than ever, women need to get together of different colors and different religions and different, you know, sexual orientations and have these discussions.
1: Great. All right. As we, as we wrap this conversation up, what, what closing thoughts might you have in relation to the book, the conversation we've had today, and, and what might the listeners uh, need to hear?
0: Just let this book be the starting point. Let these conversations, let these chapters be the starting point of having the greater discussions. Call together your own group, get three or four people together and talk about these issues and really give everyone that safe space to be able to make mistakes and say things, and if, just like Dr. Kendi, he says, I was sexist, I was homophobic. That's a lot to say. That's a lot to say openly. But he's saying, but I'm trying to get better. And that's, you know, that's why he compares it to the, the disease of cancer. I'm trying to get better.
1: I think that's what resonates most with me as well, is just that ownership, the accountability to say, I once was, but now I'm doing things differently. I've heard my whole life. When you know better, you do better. And that's what this book is really about, giving us more information, more education, to really get to a place that now that we know better, we can begin to do better. We can do better in our homes. We can do better in our communities. We can even do better within the workplace.
0: We are so glad the community is having these conversations. As I said, chapter 14 uh, was about gender, but chapter 14 and 15 fit neatly together because chapter 15 is where he really gets into the LGBTQIA issue. He already acknowledged in chapter 14 he was homophobic when he entered graduate school. And so this is really getting to his thought and his evolution. Thank you so much for tuning in to this discussion today. For more information and more episodes, you can go to www.justconversations.org. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive Producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherley, Barbara gunn and Bob Ferrissey. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate.